Rob Soloveitchik states that everything has mazel. That there is an idea, there is a discussion of in mazel Yisrael, yesh mazel Yisrael. Is there a concept of mazel? And Rav Soloveitchik states that everything, not just people, have mazel. He says, you know what has mazel? Even Torah has mazel. What does that mean? On the one hand, he says, you know how we all say there are certain halachos that have mazel and some that don't? There seem to be there these little known halachot that seem to get a lot of publicity. And then there are certain halachot that we learn them possibly later on in life and we say, how come we never knew about that? Why does nobody seem to do that? And of course, there are plenty of people that did it. We just maybe didn't know about it. But there's this idea that certain things get forgotten a little bit and certain things seem to be publicized beyond what we would expect. But an additional way to view that there is mazel to Torah is that when certain things coincide in terms of Torah and the time of year, we can understand that there was a certain amount of design that went into that. That when a certain parsha falls out by a certain holiday, there are most probably lessons that we can learn from that parsha for the holiday. One of the primary examples of this is the fact that Parsha Miketz, which we will be reading this Shabbos, almost always falls out on Shabbos Hanukkah. If Rosh Hashanah falls out on a Shabbos and two of the months between Rosh Hashanah and, and so not Tishrei, but um, Cheshvan and Tevit are all 29 day months instead of 30 day months, then we can have Miketz fall out after Hanukkah. So obviously that is a very specific set of criteria, and therefore it is probably intended that Miketz is almost always meant to be read on Shabbos Hanukkah. So what I want to do today is I want to explore a little bit about what the connection is between Parsha Miketz and Shabbos Hanukkah, that what lessons can we learn from something that so clearly came so, so many years before the holiday of Hanukkah for the holiday of Hanukkah. So again, we are not saying that Parsha Miketz included these themes in order to teach us something about Hanukkah, but rather we're saying the fact that Parsha Miketz became juxtaposed to the holiday of Hanukkah is obviously intended to teach us something. So that's what I would like to explore today. So before we delve into that question and the different approaches, I want to discuss for a minute what happens in Parsha Miketz. So we have the end of Yosef's imprisonment in jail. Again, he was caught in trouble with Potiphar's wife. She was trying to seduce him. She framed him and made it look like he was trying to to seduce her. And he got himself thrown into jail. He spends many, many years in jail. He sees his friends come and go, other inmates come and go. And Yosef still remains in jail. When the butler of Paro leaves from jail, he says to him, please remember me. Please tell Paro that I'm still in here. Obviously, the butler gets to freedom and totally forgets about his friend Yossi. However, at the beginning of Parsha Miketz, Paro has two dreams that are really, really bothering him. And he says to his staff, does anyone know someone who can help me? And the butler thinks, dream interpreter, dream interpreter. Yes, my friend Yosef. Yosef, how could I have forgotten That is how I got out of jail. I was in jail and I had a dream and Yosef interpreted it to mean that I was going to be able to get out of my imprisonment. Unfortunately, it didn't work out so well for the baker, my friend. He interpreted his dream properly as well. 
but that meant that he was sent off to death. So the butler says, please, Yosef, my friend, he's in jail. He knows how to interpret dreams. You should ask him. So Yosef comes out of jail. He's brought out of jail in order to attempt interpreting Paro's dreams. We are going to come back to that in a few minutes, but just to go on with what happens in the rest of the parsha, Yosef ends up giving Paro not only an explanation for a, but however, also a plan as to how to deal with what the dreams meant. Yosef is then appointed to second to the king in Egypt. He is given a high up ranking, a high up position. He then marries Osnat. He is given a wife now named Osnat, and he has two children, Menasha and Ephraim. There, a famine hits in the Middle East, in the land of Egypt, in the land of Israel, and Egypt is the only place that planned accordingly because of Yosef's plan. They saved up food from the years before the famine so that they would have sustenance throughout the famine. Ten of the Shvatim, they leave Binyamin at home, and Yosef obviously is already in Egypt, though they do not know that. Ten of the Shvatim come down to Egypt in order to acquire food. Yosef immediately recognizes his brothers, but they do not recognize him. He accuses them of being spies as they also enter during, through different routes to enter into the land of Egypt. He accuses them of being spies and insists that they bring their youngest brother down in order that they should be able to receive food. And as a collateral, he holds, holds Shimon prisoner while the rest of them go back to Eretz Israel to try to bring back Benjamin. As they leave, they discover that money had been um, had been returned to them. The money that they had tried to pay for their goods had been returned to them. Yaakov agrees to send Binyamin down to Egypt, contrary to his urging, contrary to what he really believes. He just, he is willing to send down Binyamin to Egypt because they really need the food, as long as Yehuda takes responsibility. Yosef greets the brothers kindly when they receive when they return back to Eretz Yisrael, but then he decides to play a trick. As they have gathered up their food and they are off to leave, he puts his goblet into Binyamin's sack and then accuses, when he can't find the goblet, he accuses Binyamin of stealing the goblet and says he is going to keep Binyamin there. That is how we end off this parsha with Binyamin being threatened to be held hostage. None of the brothers know what to do because they know that this will truly be the end of their father. So this is a jam-packed Parsha where we learn all about the happenings in Egypt, Yosef's appointment, the journey of the brothers down to Egypt. And as we know, this is really going to be the beginning of the journey down to Egypt. So the question stands, what is the connection between our Parsha and the story of Hanukkah? That we are reading them simultaneously. There must be an illusion from one to the other. So the first approach that I want to look at, I want to begin with Al-Hanisim and what is emphasized in the Al-Hanisim prayer. So in benching, in davening, for all eight days, we insert the prayer of Al-Hanisim. Al-Hanisim, Al-Haporkan, V'Al-Agvuros, V'Al-Achuos, V'Al-Hamelchamosha, Sisalavosinu, Bayamim, Ahim, Bazman, Hazah. We are thanking Hashem for all of the miracles and the salvations and the wars that Hashem helped us to win. Let's focus in on that war. That's what the rest of the tefillah does. This is a prayer from the days of Matatiyahu Kohen, from the Chashmonaim and his sons, when they stood against the Malchus Yavan, against the Greek army, the Greek empire. When they rose on, the, the Greek empire rose on B'nai Yisrael, to cause them to forget their Torah. To deter us from doing your mitzvot. And you, Hashem, in your great mercy. 
You stood up for them in their time of need. Raftas, Rivam, you fought their fights. Dantas, Dinam, you judged their judgments. Nikamtas, Nikbasam, you took um, revenge for their revenges. Masarta, Giborim, Biyad, Chalashim. You put the strong in the hands of the weak. Virabim, Biyad, Me'atim. And the great in the hands of the few. It continues on. The impure in the hands of the pure. And the evil in the hands of the tzaddikim. So something that is emphasized as we see here in the Al-Hanisim prayer is the military victory of the Hashmonaim against the Greek army. And what was so unique about that was that the, the Hashmonaim were a very clear minority. That it says the ma'atim biyad, the rabim biyad ma'atim, the many in the hands of the few, the giborim biyad chalashim, the strong ones in the hands of the weak ones. This was a very uneven battle, and the underdog, the Hashmonai army, it came out successful. They were able to succeed in battle. They were able to destroy the massive Yavani empire. So at its very core, again, there are the two miracles of Hanukkah. There is the military victory and the victory of life. For this approach, we are focusing on the military victory. And this military victory is very much one of the success of the underdog. That B'nai Yisrael clearly had the cards stacked against them. The Hashmonaim were a tiny, small, little militia army. They didn't have the organized great Greek army. And however, Hashem hands the victory to them. Hashem puts the many in the hands of the few. Hashem makes it that they should be successful against all odds. And I think that this is the first connection to the story of Hanukkah, in that Yosef was the underdog as well. He was from the youngest of the siblings. He was hated by all of his brothers. He was hated so much by his brothers that he was sold by his brothers to a foreign country only as an alternative to killing him. He definitely did not have a lot of close family and friends. Yosef was disliked. He was sent down to Egypt. In Egypt, he ends up being very successful in Potiphar's home, only to end up in a bad situation in which he is blamed and sent down to jail. He then remains in jail endlessly. People are coming and going and coming and going, and he remains. He is there. He is there for quite a long time. And lowly Yosef, when he is finally brought out of jail, again, he's a slave. And not only is he a slave, he's a slave who lost his job. How do you even lose your job when you're a slave? He lost his job. He's in jail. He is most definitely the underdog. However, as with the Hashmonaim, Yosef comes out successful. That Yosef leaves jail and is not only allowed to leave and go about his life, he is appointed as second to the king. The Mishnah Malach, he is a viceroy in Egypt. To the extent that when his brothers come down to Egypt, there is no way that they recognize him because how could this person who was cast into an empty, empty, we only hope it would have been empty, a pit filled with scorpions and snakes. How could it be that this person has now been so successful that he is the viceroy of Egypt? But this is the unbelievable nature of the Yosef story. And this is the unbelievable nature of the Hanukkah story as well. That both stories are the stories of triumph of the underdog. That one who has all the odds stacked against them can come out successful. So I believe that this is the first approach. There is a connection in the themes of the story. That in both there is the theme of the success of the underdog. And this carries us and unites us and shows us that just as Yosef was successful in Egypt, that is why the Hashmonaim, we we believe that you are never 
You're never out till you're out. That you are never unsuccessful until you really have failed. That there is always hope. That Hashem always sends this opportunity for the underdog to succeed. So that is our first approach. That both stories contain the same theme, the same message of the success of the one who seems to be in the most troubling place. So that is approach number one. For approach number two, I want to zoom in on the on the dreams of Paro. So again, we said Yosef became known for his ability to interpret dreams while in jail. Paro has dreams that are really perturbing him, and he calls upon anyone who can help him to understand these dreams. And it is at that point that Yosef is brought out of jail in order to attempt interpreting Paro's dreams. So Paro says to Yosef, I had a dream and no one has been able to explain the dream. So he says, but I heard that you are someone who is able to interpret dreams. So Yosef answers Paro and he says, it's not me, it's Hashem. We have to see what Hashem wants to interpret your dream. Paro says to Yosef, okay, let me tell you about my dream. In my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile River. Here from the Nile River came out seven healthy, strong cows. We have these beautiful cows, seven beautiful, healthy, fat cows that originally come out of the Nile, but they are followed by seven scrawny, disgusting looking cows. And it says, I've never seen such terrible looking cows in all of Egypt. And then something crazy happens and the seven skinny cows consume the seven fat cows. Skinny cows eat up these seven large cows. However, their appearance doesn't change. It's not like once these skinny cows eat the fat cows, then they then have this meat on their bones and they're able to be fattened up. Rather, it says, It is not apparent at all that the cows were now inside the other cows, that their appearance did not change at all, that even though they were skinny and scrawny before they ate these other cows, and one may think that they now would be plump and large because they've eaten a very good meal, the dream happened that they did not change at all. It was completely unnoticeable. And he said, I had a second dream. And there were seven nice, healthy stalks of wheat all coming out of one stalk. But he said, after this, there were seven stalks of wheat that were scrawny and dried up and gross. So he says, these seven scrawny stalks of wheat, 
they come and they devour these seven skinny stalks, these seven large stalks of wheat, the seven healthy stalks of wheat. And he says, Paro says, can you please help me, Yosef? I've tried to explain this dream to my Khartoumim, to my um, to my magicians, and they have not been able to explain to me what is going on in these dreams. So Paro, we see, had two very, very strange dreams. And one part that is extremely shocking is the unchanging nature of the skinny objects. That one would think if there are one set of objects that are healthy and plump and prosperous, and there's one that's dried out and skinny and scrawny, one would anticipate, based on what happens typically in the world, that if these seven skinny, scrawny things devoured something that was healthy and large, they would then appear more healthy, larger, greater, more full, more prosperous. However, something that is notable, and this is what Paro says in the Pasuk, this is what woke him up, was that the seven skinny cows were unchanging in their appearance, that they looked just as skinny and gross and dried out as before they ate the seven healthy cows as after. Yosef picks up on this fact that there is this complete hopelessness in the situation. He recognizes that when you're able to say nothing is going to help these skinny cows, nothing is going to help these skinny sheaves of wheat, they are forever going to be skinny and crinkled and scrawny. So Yosef picks up on this in his explanation of the dreams. And Yosef says, Yosef explains that what is the explanation of these two dreams? He says, on the one hand, there is going to be seven years of plenty. There are going to be seven years in which the land is extremely prosperous. It's fruitful. It's lush. However, this will be followed by seven years of famine. And Yosef makes a very fascinating statement. And he says, Once this famine hits, we are going to forget that there was ever plenty in the land. Who can think of that feeling? When it's around February and it's like 20 degrees, it's really, really cold. And you go outside at 5.30 p.m. And it's cold and it's dark and you feel that chill to the bone. Something I always think about in that moment is eventually it's going to be summer. But I forget what summer feels like. That we just went through a whole summer where at 5.30 p.m. it was still probably 70 degrees and sunny and beautiful and you had hours left of daylight. However, the moment the winter hits, it becomes almost impossible to recall the feeling of the warmth on your skin. It becomes impossible to remember what the seemingly endless daylight feels like. That whenever we're in the middle of the winter, it feels impossible to remember the warmth. And in the reverse, whenever we're in the summer, we forget just how cold it gets. We forget what it feels like to step out of your car and feel that gust of cold in your face. Because when you are so deep in something, it is hard to remember that anything was ever any way else. Yosef thought to himself that the same was going to be true with the famine. That although they were going to have these seven extremely prosperous years, if they didn't plan accordingly, it was going to disappear in a moment. The second the famine hit, they were going to forget what it was ever like to have what they needed. 
They were going to forget whatever, what it was like to ever have a prosperous land, a land that was giving forth fruits. So Yosef made a plan that brings this glimmer of hope into the darkness. That Yosef says the way to plan for what is going to happen is to put place a preemptive strike. That he says, we are not going to try to prevent the famine. The famine is going to come. However, what we are going to do is we are going to store up now. That we are going to take from the successful land, from the fruitful land, and we are going to bring that with us. And we're going to bring it with us into the days of famine. So that when it comes to the days of famine, we remember what it's like to have because we still have right now. That Yosef's plan was not just about the technicality of making sure that we save from when we have excess food to when we have a lack of food. That is a very technical matter. And that was what Yosef's responsibility was to his people, was that he had to make sure that if they had these seven years of abundance, they weren't wasting everything away so that they wouldn't have for the next seven years. Rather, he makes them, logistically, they need to plan out how they're going to have food. But Yosef's plan was so much more than that. He was planting that glimmer of hope, that moment in which we are able to see that there is something outside of where we are right now. The hopefulness within the hopelessness, the glimmer of light within the darkness. I thought of this analogy as I was putting my son to bed last night. I keep a Shabbos lamp in his room so that if I need to go in in the middle of the night and I need a little bit of light, I can turn the lamp a little without having to turn on the whole light. And then we all know the whole family will be awake and none of us will get any sleep for that night. So I walk into his room and I turn on the lamp a little bit. And then when I leave the room, I don't shut the lamp. I just turn it closed. However, there is still a glimmer of light in the room. Because for as long as that lamp is on, no matter how much I try to cover it, there is still going to be, I'm able to tell that the light is on because through the tiniest, tiniest slivers of space in the lamp, the light creeps out. This is what Yosef was doing, is he was planting, not only planning for food, but he was planting that glimmer of light that could never be extinguished. Even in the deepest depths of the famine that was to come, and a seven-year famine is extreme. That can completely wipe out a civilization if they do not have their basic sustenance for seven years. But what Yosef did is instead of allowing the light to be extinguished, that they would have no recollection, as he says in the Pasuk, we never turn out that lamp. Rather, it was just covered up. There was still, he had saved from the years of plenty. He had saved the food so that they would have in the years of famine. The same is true with Hanukkah. That on Hanukkah, we have darkness. We have the Yavanim coming to extinguish our light. We say there is no or, Torah or, Kiner mitzvah v'Torah or. Mitzvos and Torah are what bring light to our lives. And this is what the Yavanim sought to extinguish. They wanted to completely turn out that lamp. However, what did Hashem make sure? Hashem made sure that the lamp was not turned off. Rather, it was just covered. However, there were still those glimmers of light that within that darkness that seemed so thick, seemed all-encompassing, that we weren't allowed to learn Torah. We weren't allowed to keep mitzvot. They were trying to convert us to their way of life, their culture. Hashem made sure that there was still a glimmer of hope. There was the Hashem, Mila Hashem, Eli. 
not just who can win this war, who is to Hashem? Let's remember, there is still this light in our lives. And then, of course, when we get to the Pach Hashemen, this is the symbolism of the Pach Hashemen. The Pach Hashemen is that glimmer of hope in the darkness. That is the remaining food from the years of plenty that lasts through the year of famine. This was the Pach Hashemen, the one, ju- ju- the one jug of purity, the one jug of holiness. The fact that this was a Shemen Zayat Zach, that this was a pure olive oil is not lost. That olive oil brings light and tahor. This was completely pure. This was meant to be the glimmer of purity and hope and light within the lives of the Hashmonaim. That when they came back into the Beis HaMikdash, they could not bear to see that there was a lack of hope, that there was a lack of continuation for what they had had before, that everything they had had before had been completely forgotten. So that is the Pach Hashem, and that Hashem sends them this sign that the light has not been extinguished, it is just covered at the moment. And we are able to use this Pach Hashem, and as we say, it was a tiny little jug of oil that was just meant to give us that one glimmer of hope, that one day. However, it stretched for eight days. It was able to help us last until we are able to create anew, until we are able to revitalize ourselves, until we are able to give ourselves the hope and the boost that we needed to continue on. This Pacha Shemin is what held us over. So this connection between the plan of Yosef, the recognizing that the greatest despair comes when there is a complete lack of hopefulness. When we feel like everything we had before has been lost, when we feel like we can't even recall the memory of the good that we had before, that's when Yosef recognized there would be failure. But he says when there's even one glimmer of hope, that is when we will be successful. And this is the message of the Hashemona, and this is the message of Hanukkah as well. That when there was one small Pach Hashemin, that is when we were able to continue on. There may have been so many forces of darkness against us, but this glimmer of hope lets us know that there will be an end. This idea of the end to the darkness is one that is present as well. That the Midrash and Barishas Rabba, when the Pasuk starts off, that it was after two years. The, the Midrash quotes to us a Pasuk from Eov, there is an end to the darkness. When the world was created, Hashem set a designated amount of time that it would be in the darkness. The darkness is not forever. Dark, darkness is not infinite. Rather, Kate's Sham Lachoshach. If we skip down one line, we are Davar Acher. Kate's Sham Lachoshach. Zman Natan Yosef Kama Shanim Yaseb Afila Bevita Asurim. Kivan Shehigia Kate's Halam Parachalom. Yosef was given a certain amount of time that he would be in jail, whether he was aware of this amount of time or not. But there was a set and designated amount of time that Yosef would have to be in jail, that he would have to be in his own personal darkness. And leaving, coming out of jail, was his leaving the darkness. This was the Kate to the Choshach, that every darkness has an end. This is an idea that comes up in candlelighting every night when we sing Ma'otzor. I'm not going to sing it for you. I'll spare you. We We say, Hashem, please show your strength. Please show your holy arm. Please bring the Kate. Please bring the time of the Yeshua. Please take revenge on all the evil nations. 
because the time has come for us. It seems like there's no end to this darkness. There's no end to this evil. Please push away the um the those in the lowest shadow and please establish for us the days of Yeshua. What we are davening for here is we seem like it seems like there's no cates. It seems like there's no end. The darkness is so thick. But we say this when we are standing next to the candles and we say, Vikariv Kate Yeshua. Hashem, we know right now it seems like there's no limit to the darkness, but we are standing in front of the candles. We see that spark. We see that hope. Please send Kate Yeshua. Uses the same word. Ve'ain Kate, there is no end, but we say, bring about the Kate, bring about the end. That we don't lose hope. We hold on to that spark. We hold on to that little bit of hopefulness within the hopelessness. So that is approach number two, that the second connection between Parsha Miketz and Shabbos Hanukkah is that both are stories of hope within the darkness and bringing about the end of the darkness through this tiny spark of salvation. That in both there is the tiny bit of hope and that is what helps to bring us through. The third approach is one of numbers. At the beginning of this week's Parsha, we said Paro has a dream. We just read through the dreams, and this is seven. Seven. There are seven healthy cows. There are seven scrawny cows. There are seven, seven healthy sheaves of wheat. There are seven scrawny dried out um, sheaves of wheat. Seven, 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 and seven. What is the significance of the number seven? Seven is an extremely natural number. We know in Bereshis, we learn, Hashem ceased from creating the world on the seventh day. Then on the seventh day, that was the, the final seven days of creation. The seventh day, of course, being Shabbos, but that was the creation of rest. That this was the creation of Shabbos. There are seven days of creation. Additionally, there are seven colors in the rainbow. What is the rainbow? It is the refraction of light. So when you break down light into its different pieces, there are seven pieces that make up light. There are seven days in the week. Seven is a very natural number. That things that are grounded in nature are seven. The Maharal explains on a slightly deeper level, the, the Maharal explains in Guras Hashem, what is the number seven? He says the number seven is the number that binds things together. That we can have, for example, if you have a steering wheel and you have a trunk and you have some wheels and you have a hood, you have all different pieces. But if I tell you that it is a car that unites all of the pieces. The Maharal says the same is true with the number seven. That The number seven is the binder. Imagine you have a cube. A cube has six sides. But if you just say there are six sides, it's not anything at the moment. But if you say that there is a point of connection between all of these six sides, it's not one side of something floating over here and one side of something floating over here, one side of something floating over here. Rather, you say there are six sides that are united. That uniting factor is the seventh point. That is the number seven. It then becomes a cube. That that is the effect of the number seven. That seven separate days isn't really anything. But when you say it is a week, it becomes an entity. There are seven colors that, as we said, when not using a refraction method, you see just one color. You just see light. However, it is when you break it down that it comes out to seven colors. So seven is this unifying factor. Seven days in the week, 
seven colors in the rainbow. All of these things are seven. Seven days to creation was the full idea of creation. What does this have to do with our story? In our parsha, we again are talking about Egypt. Egypt, like the number seven, is very natural. Egyptian culture was based around the Nile River. That they re- relied very heavily on the Nile, that the Nile would overflow and it would irrigate their crops. And that was how their entire civilization was built upon the Nile. It was built surrounding the Nile. They worshipped then the Nile and everything that was natural. They worshipped earth. They worshipped earthly, natural things because that's what they saw supporting their lives. So it makes sense that Pyro would dream of the number seven, that even if in his greatest dreams, things are still so tied to nature. What is the story of Hanukkah, on the other hand? The story of Hanukkah is the story of the number eight. That what do we believe is the number eight? The number eight is the number of Lemala Minhateva. That when we are going to arrive at the final night of Hanukkah, we are going to say Zos Hanukkah, this is the eighth night of Hanukkah. That each day of Hanukkah, there are different kavanos that we can have. There are different intentions of what we can daven for by the candles. But on the eighth night, we say it's not for basic things like parnasa and shidduchim and health and happiness. On the eighth night is limala min hateva. It's beyond what we can even imagine. It's beyond what we have in this world. That if you think about it, a baby boy's bris comes on the eighth day. That for seven days, and this is something that that was meaningful to me when I before my first son's bris, so I I ran into somebody along the way, and along the way that person said to me, well they they turned to their young child and said to me, look, baby cat is going to perform his first mitzvah, and it was in that moment that I reframed what I was going to do because the first seven days of a baby's life are so physical. They're physical for the mother. The mother's in pain. You feel aches and pains in places that you didn't even know existed. The baby, you're constantly changing and feeding and putting them to sleep and waking them up and giving them to eat and changing them. Everything is very, 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 very physical. And then on the eighth day, we leave that physicality. That we take something physical and we elevate it to the spiritual. That already on the eighth day of life, this baby is still so tiny it is able to be elevated to limalam in Hatava, above nature, into something spiritual. And this is Hanukkah. That seven days is natural. Seven days in the week, we have seven days in the week. However, eight is limalam in Hatava. Eight is beyond what we see in the physical realm, and we jump into the spiritual realm. So what does this have to do with our Parsha? We were in Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim was so connected to the physicality. Even the idolatry, even the spirituality of Egypt, as we said, is so tied to nature, is so tied to the number seven. Paro said to Moshe, when Moshe came to Paro later on in our story, and he says, who is Hashem? I don't know any being that is outside of what I see in front of me. Even my gods, I can see directly in front of me. So Paro says to Moshe, who is Hashem? What is Hashem? I don't know any Hashem. There is no Hashem that I can't see and I can't hear and I can't feel. However, we're saying we are coupling and contrasting the natural nature of, sorry, natural nature of Egypt with our supernatural identity as Jewish people. That we believe in coming outside of nature. 
in going beyond nature. The, we see this connection as well in the Haftorah. The, in, in the Haftorah for this week's parasha is Zechariah Parak Dalid. And in Zechariah Parak Dalid, we have the imagery of the menorah nevuah. Vayomer Eli, so Zachariah says, I see a menorah and there are seven branches and it has seven pipes and there are two olive trees. There is sort of this self-sustaining menorah that it is the number seven, that there is the, there are seven branches and there are seven pipes and there are two olive trees, one for each side. And the olive trees provide the olives, which provide the oil, which drips down the pipes into the menorah. So it seems like it can light itself. However, what is missing? We're still in the number seven here. We said it has seven branches. It seems self-sustained, but something's missing. You still need to light that menorah. There may be the oil. The oil may produce itself. It may drip down into the menorah. But in the end of the day, if you don't go beyond that, it will not be lit. You can't light. It cannot light the menorah on its own. So this Nevuah and Zechariah is also alluding to this idea as well. That there is a certain level that we see in Mitzrayim that is natural. However, the holiday of Hanukkah is meant to remind us that there is nothing. There is no such thing as nature on its own that we need to remind ourselves that things really can be pushed to level eight, that there is something that goes beyond nature in everything we see, that there is a supernatural nature to everything that we see in front of us. Rob Soloveitchik, to conclude this this approach, has an interesting discussion on, on Hanukkah. And he says, Hanukkah is the easiest holiday to ignore Hashem's existence. What does that mean? What are you saying? What do you mean? The whole thing is a miracle that one jug of oil lasted for eight nights. I don't know about you. That seems pretty miraculous. However, Rav Soloveitchik says, we have to remind ourselves that the story of Hanukkah happens when there is no longer any Nevuah in the world. There is no Navi of Hanukkah. What is Hanukkah? What do we know about Hanukkah? The records of historians writing down that there was a miracle that occurred. And so we celebrate a holiday today. We always talk on Purim about Hester Panim, that Hashem's face is hidden. However, in the end of the day, Esther was a Nevia. Esther wrote down Miguel and Esther, and we have the holiday until today. We still eventually see the revelation of Hashem's presence in the story. Hanukkah, obviously, we feel, looking back at it now, that there was a miracle that occurred. But if you're looking at it without wanting to see Hashem's involvement, you are able to say, okay, there was a military victory. We have nothing that seems to be inherently spiritual. We don't have a Navi. We don't have Hashem's direct input. We never at any point have Hashem saying, and now we should celebrate the holiday of Hanukkah. This seems to be totally and completely human made. And it is in that that we are told that we have to recognize the spirituality. We have to recognize the number eight. We have to recognize the Limalam in Hateva. That though we can look at it and we can say it's all natural. We can say that there's no Hashem in the story. There's not even Hashem after the story telling us about the story. But we must remind ourselves that this is a holiday of eight. This is not a holiday of seven. This is a holiday that has that ingredient of the divine involvement. And Rav Salvechik says that you can see this in the story of Yosef as well. 
that what sent Yosef down to Mitzrayim? An ish. He happens upon an ish on the road. And there are a number of times throughout Torah that we see an ish at integral turning points in the Torah. There is an ish who informs someone. There is an ish who directs someone. Like here, the ish directs Yosef to his brothers, which forever changed the course of history. Rav Solvichik says that ish is the Yad Hashem that we are able to see tangibly in the stories. That we are able to look at it and say, okay, he just asked a man for directions. Or we can look at it through the lens of the number eight. We can say, this is not something natural. This ish is Lamalam in Hateba. He's outside of just being a random Joe Shmo. This is direct Yad Hashem intervening in our story. So Rav Salvechik says, we see the hand of Yad Hashem, even though it is hidden in the story of Yosef, that Hashem sent Yosef down to Egypt. And we are able to see it in our Hanukkah story as well, that although we never discuss Hashem's involvement, we don't see Hashem's involvement. There is no grand revelation at the end of Hashem's involvement. It is very clear that we are working in the world of Lamala min Hateba, outside of what is natural and regular. So to conclude, why do we read Parsha Miketz on Shabbos Hanukkah? The first approach we had is that both Hanukkah and the story of Yosef are the story of the underdogs, that the ones who had the most stacked against them are the ones that came out the most successful in the end. Approach number two was that we discussed that both, both contains themes of the end to the darkness, that whenever there is a glimmer of hope, there is a small amount of whatever we had that gave us hope before, we are able to remember that the trouble, the darkness that we are in right now will not last forever. We just need to be able to hold on to that glimmer of hope. And lastly, last but definitely not least, we have the themes of the seven and the eight. That in the story of Yosef, we see seven repeatedly. We see nature, natural, everything that is very tied to what we see directly in front of us. With Hanukkah, we have the number eight. We have the supernatural, Imala min Hateba. And what Rav Soloveitchik told us was that we must take this supernatural idea of Hanukkah and recognize that we could have been able to focus on only the natural in the supernatural of Hanukkah. And to take that idea to the story of Yosef and to say, we could focus only on the nature, but we must bring in the supernatural as well. So I hope that as we approach Shabbos Hanukkah, we are able to think about these lessons and think about the meaning that we can bring about from connecting the messages of the story of Yosef to the story of Hanukkah and how it can enhance our understanding of both.